Well, good, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Patrick, here from the Poison Pen Bookstore. And um, I've been looking forward to seeing Steve again for a long, long time. Um, please help me welcome Steve Hawkinsmith back to the Poison Pen. We established that it had been, I think, 17 years, right? Yes, yes. Uh, my first book, uh, Homes on the Range, came out in, if I'm remembering right, I bet there are people here who could correct me, but I, I believe it was 2006. So, uh, and you know, 2006, yeah. Uh, Big Red and Old Red um, first showed up in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine uh, in a short story called Dear Mr. Holmes in uh, 2003, which means to everybody, this is now a what's, what's a 20th anniversary? Uh, a bronze, or it's, we're, we're now celebrating the 20th anniversary of Big Red and Old Red. So, well, it's really great. As you can see here, a couple of the titles. Um, they brought the whole series back into these really nice uniform editions, which is so great to see. We were talking about that. Yeah, uh, the imprint is uh, hard. At, I always get it, Rough Edges Press. I want to. I always want to call them Hard Edges Press, Rough Edges Press of Wolfpack Publishing, and uh, we've just gotten into this great partnership where they brought back the entire series, repackaged all the old books, and then just bang, 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 have been bringing out, or going to be bringing out new ones. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I walked into the store tonight and saw the display of all of these Rough Edges Press, Wolfpack, Holmes in the Range covers, I was thrilled. I, they just, they look great, you know, on your computer screen, but seeing them live uh, in the wood flesh, it was, it was astounding. Right, and so the, the, the brand new one is called Hunters of the Dead, and this is uh, number seven in the series. Um, I was aware that you had published this one, but I never got a chance to read it, the AA Western Detective Agency, until just recently, and uh, what a treat, you know? It's so great to see these guys back, and um, you know, congratulations on the relaunch. Really, thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, probably I, maybe I should tell a little bit of the homeless in the range story yeah. for for That'd those poor individuals out there who don't know it. Um, so yes, originally the series started uh, with a series of short stories in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Um, since they were well received, it seemed like, gosh, maybe I should write a book about these guys. So that was Holmes on the Range, the first one that came out from St. Martin's Minotaur, 2006. We did five books with uh, St. Martin's Minotaur. Was um, nominated for a whole bunch of awards. Oh, thank you for Sheamus, bringing that up. The, yes, yes. The I Cavity, I think, right? I wasn't nominated for the McCavity. Boo on you, McCavity. Oh, screw no, them, I, man. I forgive you. Uh, oh, gosh, but several of the others, yeah. uh, the biggies. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so now I get to say, uh, you know, Edgar Award finalist for the rest of my life. So that's that's a lovely thing. Um, but yeah, after five books, uh, Minotaur uh, let me go my on my merry way. Um, and I took a break and was doing, uh, you know, lots of other books after that. Zombie books, kids books, uh, tarot mystery books. Um, but the whole time I was thinking about Big Red and Old Red, I missed those guys. I, when I wrote the fifth novel, uh, World's Greatest Sleuth, um, I had—I I don't think that when I was writing that book, the, the Minotaur had officially let me go my merry way yet, but I saw it coming. And I gave that book um, what I thought was a nice ending, um, that through the first five books, we see the guys um, become... Uh, enamored of this idea of being professional detectives, and they they go about trying to do it, and it 
leads them into a series of misadventures and things don't always uh, go their way. But by the end of the fifth book, it happens. And spoiler alert, uh, we learn that through a, a fortuitous confluence of events, they will have a detective agency. And I was like, well, I could leave them here. And if I never write about them again, I, I, I put them through all these trials and tribulations. I made their life heck, but now I'm going to leave them in this in a happy place. And then, you know, a few years go by and I thought they don't want to be in the happy place. They want to be where the murders are. Um, and now they've got a detective agency, so I can't just let that lie. Um, so that's when I did the AA Western Detective Agency, just sort of revived it on my own, uh, experiment in self-publishing uh, that, that went, you know, very nicely. Um, but I, you know, and I thought maybe I could leave it again, you know, like here, you know, uh, but I still kept dreaming about, well, what's next and, and who could help me get the guys back out there again. And that's how Wolfpack slash Rough Edges got into the picture. And they've done a great job of that. Um, now this, this period, I can imagine that it, it was, a it was on your mind constantly because it's so fascinating, this particular point in time, you know, we were talking a little bit about it, you know, set, the books are set in a very narrow window so far, mm -hmm. um, which is what 18 or 19, excuse me, 1892 or the end of that through now early 1894. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the big thing that comes to my mind is just change 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 very quickly so you yeah you see a lot of that in the book yeah the the first story is a, on a cattle drive i think in the summer or spring of 1892 and um hunters of the dead takes place in i believe late may or early june of 1894 so as you say it's like a small window and a lot has happened to these poor guys in the span of two years uh they're just lucky like that they just are constantly tripping over bodies um but yeah, it, it was an amazing transitional period. Um, part of the reason that I ended up doing the series in the first place was that um, Ellery Queen does every year a Sherlock Holmes tribute issue. And uh, so I was, you know, writing short stories for them at the time, trying to think of things they would like. I thought, oh, I got to write a Sherlockian thing. Um, but I didn't want to write about Sherlock Holmes. I didn't want to do a, a, a pastiche because I didn't trust myself to capture the voice of John Watson. I felt like I'm very American. I'd rather do something like that. Those Holmes people are really serious too. Oh, they are, and they, <laughs> they will they will take you to task if you yeah. do not uh, capture it just the way they think it should be captured. And I don't I don't want to be shackled to that. I'd rather be free to like do my own thing. Um, and so I was thinking about like, well, if I want to do a Sherlockian thing, but I I wanted to be American but I do want it to be period. I want it to be in the same period as Sherlock Holmes. The thing I realized is that um, the Victorian period and the Old West are the same period. People sort of seem to forget that sometimes, that all these other things that were going on in the world that you associate with the Victorians or the Industrial Age, the Gilded Age, all that was going on at the same time as the later part of the, the Wild West. And so then that's what led me to like, well, what would people in the Wild West think if they were to read about this Sherlock Holmes guy back in Victorian England? And it all grew out of that. But then, yeah, as they've uh, traveled around having their adventures, they've both had sort of very Western adventures, things on cattle ranches, on trains, uh, with, uh, you know, land feuds and things like that. But they've also been to the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and they've also been in Chinatown in San Francisco, where there was a lot of political stuff going on uh, that has echoes all the way up to today. Was that some of the Barbary Coast stuff that was going on? Yeah, there was, there was a combination of things uh, where 
San Francisco was a you know port city, super super wild. Uh, the the Barbary Coast was the the area of it that was really famous. Is like if you're a sailor, you do not want to get a drink in the Barbary Coast. Of course, all the sailors want to get a drink in the Barbary Coast, but you're like the thing of being Shanghai was a real thing. Like yeah. you, the people would actually drug you and throw you on a boat, and you wake up and you're in the middle of the Pacific, and sorry, you're not getting home for three months because it was so hard. I mean, imagine a job that's so bad they have to drug people. And kidnap them and take them into the Pacific Ocean just to get people to do it. But that was a real thing that would happen to people on the Barbary Coast. But what was also happening, the Barbary Coast was right on the edge of Chinatown. Um, and California at that time, I mean the whole country, but particularly in California because there was a large Chinese population. Th there were a lot of really virulent race riots race riots and, yeah. and anti-chinese laws right. um there was so there was a big political thing that was going on that uh, the the chinese both built the transcontinental railroad as the as the primary laborer um and were not allowed to ride on it you know so it was this thing so that that also plays into the story of like all of the uh, complicated and sad politics of the time and this is big red and old red stumbling into this so you know it, they get to mix it up with uh this incredible landscape of the time Let, let's talk about about these two guys brothers um uh otto is uh, let me make sure i got my notes straight otto is big red that's right and uh, gustav is old red and um you do play with, you know, the, some of the parallels with the what Conan Doyle did, you know, uh, where Gustav, he's sort of the illiterate yet very cerebral, uh, he's cerebral at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the real, the real sleuth of the operation, although he can't read. And, um, and so his brother is in some ways fills the Dr. Watson side in some ways, not exactly. But but pretty much fills the same role. Yeah, he's the he's the chronicler. He writes down, and he also writes for the uh, the penny dreadfuls of the day. Right, and you know, which is one of the things that's interesting about Big Red, the position that he's in, is that he is absolutely the Watson. He's the guy who's standing over here watching the brilliant guy, and he sees all the same stuff the brilliant guy sees. Uh, so that you, the reader, can see those same things, mm -hmm. but you, he's not putting it together the way the brilliant guy is, because if if the b book was from the brilliant guy's perspective, the book would be over on page twelve, because we'd all see exactly what's happening right away, and there's no there's no story, there's no mystery for us. But also, when Conan Doyle was writing the the, the home stories, that was a an approach to your narrator. That, that carried on actually for decades. Like if you read the um, S.S. Van Dien or S.S. Van Dyne books. Philo Vance. The Philo Vance books. Right. It's the exact same model where there, it, although it's a little different in that the narrator is even more of a nobody than John Watson. Like John, I love Dr. Watson, so I'm not calling him a nobody. But the thing about Watson is it's very hard to find moments in all of the canon where what he does makes any difference. He's not really an active participant. He's sort of like, he grabs his gun, when Holmes tells him, grab your gun, and he's like, come with me, and he comes with him, and he might lean over a body and say, oh, this guy's been dead for an hour. Well, it's like Ishmael. You know, he was the same role. Right. He's, he was he's the, he's he's the everyman. The observer. The everyman but character. From a modern perspective of what we expect from our narrators, we want them to be involved. We want them to be engaged. They have to be dynamic. And so uh, that's a struggle sometimes. Like, I always have to remember, like, Give Big Red something to do, you know, like he so he's uh, he's called Big Red because he is a, a large uh, and brawny fellow. And so, yes, he gets to hit people from time to time. And it turns out he's 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 
not bad at it and he's getting better at it all the time thanks to his friend that's convinced him um so um yeah that's that's going to be one of the interesting things to explore as the series goes on is um you know as you mentioned old red is is the the brilliant one also the illiterate one and i had to face the question when when it came time to continue the series well why is old red illiterate you know and, and i know why like the backstory of why of like the family you know farm family and only one kid could go to school and that was Otto, and so that's you know so all that's established but why would old red stay illiterate he loves these stories of sherlock holmes he's come to love books uh, or, or these stories anyway why would he not be he's an early audiobook fan he is a, he <laughs> is all that and big red is his narrator yeah. that is an excellent point but would old red really stay passive about that and and then the question that i had to ask myself was um is old red illiterate because he's dyslexic uh on top of being poorly educated just because of his background or is it purely it's his background and he's uh he's just sort of never pushed himself to do it because until he encountered the Sherlock Holmes stories, he never had a vision of himself as someone who would live the kind of life where you would need this stuff. He, he had, was sort of limiting himself, but now he's doing the opposite of that and he's pushing him. So nutshell, it's the latter. And, I've, and in the, the last few stories for Ellery Queen and in the new book, you'll see Old Red is finally saying, I need to do this myself. I am going to teach myself to read. And that's good for Old Red, but what does that mean for Big Red? And what does that mean for their relationship? Because part of the role, part of the thing that Big Red could do other than hit people from time to time and crack jokes and annoy Old Red um, is he he was the guy who would read the clues, right? right? If they go into a room and there's a somebody wrote in blood, you know, John did it. Uh, it, it was up to Big Red to say, well, looks like John did it. Um, you know, so he he could provide that service, that role. But once Old Red can read that takes away part of big reds change the dynamic a it little changes bit. the dynamic and it makes old red less uh, you know not dependent on big mm. red in the same way so I, that's something i'll be exploring more as we go on is like how does this change the way that the brothers interact with each other right now can you talk about just how important or influential the the doyle stories the sherlock holmes stories were to the general readership i mean they were tremendously successful and read widely correct i mean oh yeah no they were uh, i mean i'm trying to think like what the parallel would be today i mean unfortunately today the, they're the bad parallel parallels was, yeah 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 it's like they were embraced and beloved in a way where you know people there's there's stories that might be apocryphal about when when uh conan doyle killed off sherlock holmes that people in uh, London were walking around with black armbands because, you know, they, they felt so strongly. I, either they felt so strongly about his death or that they had a hard time separating the fictional Sherlock Holmes from reality, which hmm. I, I blend uh, or blur that even more in my books because in my books they are, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a real guy. Um, and I, I just happened to set mine in the period where the world thinks that Sherlock Holmes is dead right. um, after... Uh, uh, his last bow? Uh, no, no, that was much later. The Help final me, everybody. solution? The, yes, thank you. Oh, I can't believe I blanked on that. Um, so, um, but yeah, no, they, they were hugely, hugely uh, popular, so much so that uh, I think it is actually plausible. 
the final problem, thank you. The final solution was the Michael Chabon novel uh, yeah. that took off on Sherlock Holmes. Um, but yes, I, I do think it's, uh, it's actually plausible that people in the Wild West would have run across uh, a magazine uh, about the adventures of Sherlock Holmes because uh, they were being published in America uh, and uh, they were just all around the world. And we were talking a little bit before we got started here about, um, you know, about the Pinkertons and the uh, and like the Burns Detective Agency and any number of other ones that were around. You know, the the most of the railroads would have their own detective agencies, and there's so much. I mean, all the labor history that was going on at this time. And talk a little bit about about that and and how that plays into the series or 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 how it it might going forward. Yeah, no, there's uh, there's a on my PC at home. There's a file. It's probably just called like ideas or something like that. And it's this um, this long list of interesting factoids uh, from the period that I thought would make for good fodder for a book. And one of those is I think it was Coeur d'Alene. I don't know how to pronounce it. The, in Idaho, there was a, like a, a really brutal uh, strike uh, miners uh, that involved a lot of a series of bombings. Uh, that was, and that was right around the same time. That was probably 18, early 1890s. Um, so like, okay, that, that's gotta be one of the, one of the things they face one of these days. Um, another thing that was on the list for a really long time was fossil hunters. Um, and I don't remember exactly, yes, it got there eventually. Um, I don't remember where I ran across this, you know, interesting factoid. It was pretty long time ago. It's been in the ideas file for a really long time that, um, the West in this period was actually, uh, just a wash in fossils and that in that period the the sort of you know, like basically more or less post-civil war period was when paleontology was really coalescing as a science um and a lot of that knowledge was coming from fossil hunts in the west um and you know all through this wild west period this there are paleontologists running around the west and uh I, how many people are familiar with this thing called the bone wars has anybody? Oh, good. Then I get to educate. It's people. a great title, by the way. Uh, I, and it, there's like six or seven books that uh, that titled that. Yes, that had. They're called the Bone Wars because oh. someone remembers it. Crichton. Crichton. Yeah, the Bone well, Wars you know, between the two paleontologists. The, yes, and and uh, the, we will get to the Michael Crichton book because that that almost derailed my book. Um, but yeah, there was this feud between these two paleontologists uh, as the field is just sort of coming into its own. Uh, this one guy, O.C. Marsh, who was uh, the first professor of paleontology at an American college at Yale, and then this other guy, Edward Drinker Cope, um, who was also an academic, uh, and they started off sort of friendly and then became very unfriendly and hated each other. And um, in fact, at one point, they were both at this place called Como Bluff in Wyoming, which was like one of the richest fossil finds in all of the West. Uh, and uh, Cope was at one end of Como Bluff and uh, Marsh was at the other end with his camp. They had rival digs. And of the two of them, it seems like Marsh was the bigger jerk. Um, he would do things like send his men out with broken, uh, worthless fossils to spread around the other guy's site to help to mess up uh, what they could figure out of the timing and you know, like sort of the uh, the periods that the bones came from. When he was uh, felt like he was done with the site, he would blow it up with dynamite uh, so that no one else could possibly come there and find more stuff. So like the science was taking a big backseat to the rivalry with the we other guy. We don't change much, do we? 
it's sad to see right how much it becomes about ego and and a conflict as opposed to sort of pure ideals but like once i started learning about these guys it was like oh come on this is this is a mystery story here someone's gonna get dead um but then i found out that there is a book called dragon teeth by michael Crichton that is about this very thing or at least it's set in that world and i thought for you know I, I it made me probably take that that line like fossil hunters and move it down to the bottom of the idealist because like well michael Crichton did it and everyone's going to think i'm ripping off michael Crichton. and i mentioned this to somebody if, like a couple years ago and they're like oh i've never even heard of that book don't worry about it and i was like they know you're Jurassic right park they don't know yeah you're like and uh, if I do it as like sort of this, you know, Wild West mystery thing, it's different enough, no matter how I do it, it's going to be different enough than from Michael Crichton that hopefully, plausibly, no one can say like, that guy ripped off Michael Crichton. I, I'm, and I still haven't read the book, I swear to God. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're very different books. So yeah, I, I, I'm glad that someone talked me into it because I'm very, I'm very happy with the book. I think it turned out well. Um. Let's talk a little bit kind of uh, about, you know, you mentioned that Victorian England and, and the Old West and the end of the frontier period and the industrialization, all that stuff. It's all coming at the same time. And, um, you know, all these new advancements in forensics, you know, very early forensic science, you know, what, what was going on in Scotland Yard. And you've got, when was the Jack the Ripper? Was that 1880s? 1890s something around it was the 80s yeah yeah so all this stuff is very you know and all that fascinating business with the body snatching mm -hmm. you know and there's just so much cool stuff to write about body snatching yeah. is, is on the list the idealist uh because uh who could resist it yeah like medical schools they needed how do you teach people you know about what's in there unless you're getting in there and if you don't have enough people to get into you're gonna have to make some uh, maybe so and thus uh, frankenstein was born right yeah there's there's yeah. a lot of uh, of good fodder there um but yeah i think like the whole idea of the fingerprint mm -hmm. uh, that's right from that right around that same period of time um i think it was the pinkertons who were um they were developing sort of these these file systems for trying to track criminals and right around this time fingerprinting got figured out i don't think it's quite there yet i haven't had to stick it into one of the books yet right uh but yeah maybe they're going to meet somebody who's a little ahead of the game uh uh from them and uh, school them a little bit on some of this stuff right now you mentioned um i mean okay let's just talk a little bit let's back up and talk a look a little bit about double a and then we can get back into this and talk um so in this in this particular book you mentioned they they've finally set up their own little agency they don't have a case quite yet well they they do um, in this book. Um, in the background are the range wars, mm -hmm. um, but also talk a little bit about their, I don't want to say benefactor, but their, uh, now I'm spacing his name. Crow? Colonel Crow. Crow. Yes. And his daughter, who's very interesting. Yes. Kind of a true uh, Portis uh, way. Well, thank you. Yes. You know, uh, Diana has ended up, you know, she, she first shows up in On the Wrong Track, the second book, and has now you know, been a, a recurring character all through the stories and novels. She's not in every story, she's not in every novel, but she's she's always sort of on their minds and she's, she's yep. around a lot and plays an active role often. And that was because, um, you know, in, in why well, I, I have to watch out for spoiler territory, I wanted to react to something from the first book 
involving the female characters, which I won't talk about for spoiler reasons. But so I, I wanted to have a an active, dynamic, uh, laudable, cool female character in the second book. Uh, that that became Diana, and then she was so cool, you know. And the guys liked her so much. I just had to kind of keep her around. Um, we we also learned that it is her um, her adoptive father, Colonel Crow, um, who was running. You had mentioned earlier how the big corporations would have their own police forces, and that in that book they're uh, trying to work for the Southern Pacific Railroad Police, which was a real thing, um, which Colonel Crow was running in the book. Uh, thanks to their help, he gets fired eventually, and uh, but. Again, thanks to Diana, yada, yada, they all become friendly and uh, end up starting this detective agency as partners. Um, and so um, Colonel Crow, even though it's not all his money that's making the detective agency happen, in his Colonel Crow way, he's sort of making it his detective agency, which that will be something else that we'll see how that plays out. And already uh, in, in the books and stories that have happened since then, you've seen that uh, Big Red and Old Red, Old Red in particular are not super happy about that. But they kind of go along with it because it's he's got connections and he's making work. He's he's giving them opportunities to get out and be detectives. But as you say, in double A Western Detective Agency, the thing that they run a run up against is that if you're hired to be a detective in the 1890s, what that mostly means usually is not you're out solving mysteries with, you know, arcane puzzles and interesting clues, your muscle. You're busting heads. You're busting heads. Strike, strike You're, busting. That's what the Pinkertons were doing, mostly. Uh, and they were extremely unpopular as a result. Um, so that when uh, AA Western Detective Agency, they get sent out to be muscle for, uh, you know, a cattle baron in a, in a uh, range war. And Old Red hates it. He just can't stand it. Like, you know, I, this is not why he got into this business. Um, and, okay, spoiler alert for earlier in the book, he quits. Uh, like he's he's just not going to do this. He's not going to go out and just stand around with a gun for some guy. That's not who he is. And fortunately, someone gets murdered. So you know, good news. Uh, and uh, then Old Red has something to do and can and can uh, use his talents. And in fact, in Hunters of the Dead, it's sort of the same thing again, a little different. That uh, they have been hired as guards for one of these parties of paleontologists. Um, and the thing that's different for Old Red there is even though he's basically been stand, hired to stand around with a gun again, which he does not like, these are paleontologists. They're digging around after after old dead animals. He's actually like really uh, engaged in and fascinated by it. Um, so it gives him a reason to stick around beyond waiting for someone to die. But fortunately, someone dies as well. Now, I think about the Museum of Natural History. Are, are some of those early fossils, are those the ones that are ending up there? Yeah, no, that's a, a very interesting thing about this period is that uh, right at this time, the, the 1890s, there was still this big rush to find the big animal, the big uh, dinosaur fossils. Uh, in the book, it's uh, Diplocitus, is the, the big sort of brontosaurus-like animal that everybody wants. Why did everyone want to find Diplocitus, it was big. It was the biggest one. So like that got everybody all excited and there was this, you know, all this fussing and feuding to see who was going to get the Diplocitus. But the thing that no one had figured out yet was, well, you've got all these bones, right? And you send them back to New York or wherever it is where the people are going to, you know, sort of piece them together. And then, eh, then they sit in the warehouse and nobody had figured out till right around this time. And I don't remember who was the person who had this sort of, you know, brilliant idea. But like, you know what, you can put all these together, it's kind of like a puzzle, and you can kind of string it up and make it look like a real thing. And if you do that, 
people will come look at it. And if you put it in your museum, they'll come pay money to look at it and they'll support your museum. So that was right after this 1894, when, when that all came together. And that's when in the early 20th century, you, um, there was this explosion of these exhibits in museums. Like, I, obviously, we all grew up with these. We take them for granted today. But at the time, this was like a huge innovation, this idea that you could take these old dead animals and, and put them back together and put them up, and people could come and be wowed, just sort of imagining them alive. Right. Now, what, weren't some of the uh, the Egyptian tombs being discovered at roughly the same time? There yeah, was I think a about lot of Car that Howard on. Carter and yes. some of that stuff. Now, that be, that's to the east uh, so that's the opposite of the direction I push in for the Westerns. <laughs> Send so them over I, to to, to uh, Africa. Yeah, yeah, they they will not be uh, raiding any tombs. It would be kind of fun, you know. Well, it, no, it definitely would. And, see them you know, blundering around in these tight spaces. In uh, <laughs> I sort of did it in uh, in World's Greatest Sleuth. Uh, some folks might remember. Uh, you know, th that's the one set at the World's Columbian Exposition, the World's right. Fair in Chicago, and there was a huge fake. Egyptian exhibit at that Columbian oh, that, Exposition, right. and I put them in there, and someone tries to burn them alive in it, and so they do get to see fake mummies. That's true. So I sort of did it, um, but in terms of like thinking about like the direction I push in, um, I, I do want to keep them uh, uh, west of the Mississippi, um, and uh, but I, I think that that means that uh, it's on my list. It's in the idea file. Hawaii. Ooh, there yeah. were there were big big cattle operations in Hawaii at this time. Okay, they got to go to Hawaii for a case. And if they're going to go to Hawaii for a case, don't you think since you're going to have to do like a three week ship cruise to get there, someone should die on the boat too? Like, there's two books there. Of course, yeah. Then maybe somebody dies coming back. I mean, now I've got a trilogy. You could send them to Molokai. Well, see, there you go. Uh, that's where the leper colony was. Yeah. Like, there's a whole other, maybe. Maybe they become the Hawaiian cowboy detective. No, I don't want them to go stay that far <laughs> west. But they, I think they're going to go to Hawaii one day. But that might be book uh, 72 uh, right. at the pace I'm going now. So tell us a little bit more about these two guys. I mean, the, the two brothers. I mean, they're not... Uh, are they... I mean, they're not like Bert and Ernie here. I mean, uh, tell, tell us about their, uh, about their own interests outside of, of this kind of stuff. Have you kind of explored who they are apart from these roles? Well, that's an excellent, excellent question. And that's something that I will, I'll need to be exploring more. You know, when you're writing this kind of story, you have to say, stay so focused on the plot right. that there's only so much room, you know, for, for outside stuff. So we know that uh, Old Red uh, loves Sherlock Holmes. We know that he is a cowboy. We know that he, uh, or was a cowboy. That he, that he grew up on a farm, but then he left at a very young age to become a cowboy to send money back to his family. We know that that's like a big part of his identity, yep. that he still very much associates with him, himself with that, even though now he's trying to associate himself with something else. We know that he's very uh, shy around women, mm -hmm. um, and that's something that will be explored more as the series goes on. Um, and yeah, we know he's just generally kind of crabby. Um, but I don't know, maybe he'll lighten up as the series goes on. So you can't really marry these guys off, right? Because then that, that would take them away from there. Then you got a whole other character who's in the mix all the time. That's true. And, you know, uh, a lot, you know, I certainly have heard from readers who are very anxious for, for something to get sparked up with Diana. Yeah, of course. And, uh, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see about that. Big Red it would definitely vote uh, for that. Yes. Yep. Uh, but he he is still um 
like 21, 22. He's a very young guy. Um, and she's been established as being, uh, I won't call her an old maid because she's like 26 or something, but by the standards of the day, right. that's like forties. Right? She's like past her prime. Uh, but like, you know, old red doesn't care about that. Old red is very fond of her as well, but that, that, that falls into the category of, I haven't made up my mind yet. Um, so yeah, we'll see. And in, um, the AA Western Detective Agency, there are several other characters related to the detective agency who get introduced, people who are brought in by the crows um, that we that we meet. One of them is a guy named Burr, who is still mysterious. We've only seen him a little bit in this one book, but we know he has sort of a special thing going with Diana. I'm hoping to spin them off into their own thing at some point, and then we'll see what kind of special thing they have together. Now, um, their base of operations is Ogden, Utah. Yes. Uh, and you chose that because it's a, a railroad hub, right? That's exactly right. When in doing the research, uh, you know, I, I needed to pick some place where conceivably they could sort of, you know, dart off to anywhere in the West quickly via rail to go have an adventure, you know, in all the states of the West. And when I was looking at like, well, what's what was sort of like not exactly centrally located, but, you know, at the at the center of the spider web uh, of the transcontinental railroads. It was Ogden, Utah. So, like, okay, they're gonna they're gonna live in Ogden, Utah, and now I've got them established. Uh, if you read the short stories, uh, we've met their landlady. She's gotten them into some trouble a few times, and uh, we've seen them sort of bopping around town a little bit. And that's one thing that's also developing for them too is um, they have a home now, and that's different because all through the rest of the series up until you know the last couple uh, stories and books. They were nomadic. They were they were drifters. Uh, their their home had been destroyed. Their uh, their uh, the family farm washed away in a flood. They lost all their family. They were alone, and they all they had was each other. And we saw them just sort of trying to make sense of it and find find some place. Well, now they they have a home. They have a business. They have friends. They have a life. So there's a whole new thing going on. Now are the the Mormons a big presence? there yet they they have not presented themselves in the story much yet there have yeah. been mormon characters and there's been mentions of it but it that's a that's a tricky one i mean it is tricky it's it's but it's also you know there's the mormon war i mean right oh there's yeah there's just all kinds of history there uh that was explored like you know uh zane gray writers yep. of the purple sage is about the mormons as is of course don't tell me don't say it first i've got to get there first oh Darn, which one is it? Is it Study in Scarlet? It's it's one of oh. the yeah, Study in Scarlet, the yep. the very first. Uh, thank you very much. The very first Sherlock Holmes one. Um, there's a like half of it is uh, like a western basically with the Mormons. That's right. So there's there's all kinds of history that I that I could pull in. I've been a little because it's been well, explored. That gives in these you other places, that gives you a good a good connection though with the Holmes thing. It gives me a good in. Yeah. But I just ooh that one I. Certain you don't want things, to. You, you don't want to offend people. But, I don't want to offend people. You have to do your research, or at so least carefully. offend everybody equally. That's more my goal. Yeah, and yeah I yeah. think I'm getting there. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, with Eskimenzum, who's uh, another one of these guys that's now a member of the detective agency, yeah. he's been brought in by the Crows. He's a, an Apache who um, knew knew Colonel Crow through the the Tenth Cavalry. Um, I have like on the idealist is uh, you know the uh, the Apache reservation because it's a, you know it's established backstory for him that he's got family back there, and there's all kinds of interesting things that were going on related to the Indian reservation. Yeah, I guess I can still call them the Indian reservations of that time. That's what they call them, and um, 
But that very sad story though with Eskimensen, the real with the Camp Grant massacre. Do you guys know about that story? Anyway. Yeah, that's the other one. That's not that's not my guy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like if if I were to ever do that, I would have to be so careful about how about my research and about how I depicted things in it. Not that I'm not careful with my research and not that I'm not careful about how I depict things, but yeah, I'm trying to have fun and I'm trying yeah, to right, I'm trying to exactly. have fun for the fun people and some things don't lend themselves as much to that. Sure, right, exactly. I even kind of worry, you know, about like uh, you know, the the earlier books got darker. Uh like The Black Dove, the third book is the one set in San Francisco dealing with all the anti-Chinese racism and um you know, I wonder now looking back like did I go too dark with that? When the next one The Crack in the Lens gets very very dark as well, mm. uh, sort of exploring the idea of like how do you catch a a killer who's crazy like if you're sherlock holmes and you're always looking for like what's logical how do you catch someone who's insane and just kills people because they like to um and that you know just got very very dark which is why um world's greatest sleuth the one that came right after that was the most frothy light confection <laughs> of them all because I, like, I i had to do something different and make it fun again and i feel i feel like i found a good balance with the two books uh since then uh that of there, there's a grittiness there, you know, there's there's violence, uh, there has to be in these books, um, and there's some harsh realities, but it's mostly fun. Kind of rip-roaring tales. Um, tales of adventure. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, well, I was going to ask you, who are some of the, I know you're, you re probably read really widely, um, who are some of your influences with this? Was uh, Joe Lansdale? At oh, all, yeah, or... Joe's up there. Joe is great. I'm sure everybody here knows Joe's Lansdale and Lauren Estelman. Maybe I've read a lot of Lauren. He's those are great. Does excellent stuff. Uh, yeah, like pretty much all the people who were sort of blending um, mysteries and westerns kind of stuff. I I would pick up. You know, Elmore Leonard, of course. You know, who who went from westerns to to thrillers. Um, in terms of the the folks who were really influential for me, I think. Uh, and this might sound a little wacky, but I think it does make sense. Well, there, there's some that, that make more like immediate sense, like Little Big Man. The novel the Little Big Man has has a, a voice that speaks to you very directly. And if you remember the movie, it's the voice of Dustin Hoffman in that movie. I was born in, in Evansville, Indiana. You know, so that 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 novel, when I read that, the way that that voice just grabbed me right away and I heard it in my head, that always uh, stuck with me. And True Grit is the same way, where it's the, the girl's voice, but she's telling you the story very directly. She's a very particular person yeah. who expresses herself in a very particular way, and she's wonderful, and th that really sticks with you. But the person, the writer that I encountered as a teenager, who just like really uh, cranked my 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 passion for wanting to create up to 11 he just the 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 it was so inspiring was kurt vonnegut uh when i when i just sort of stumbled on a kurt vonnegut book in the high school library um and again it was the thing of like hearing a voice that immediately speaks to you like you open the first page raymond chandler was the same way for me when i when i uh in fact i was struggling to figure out what to be as a writer and was wasting my time writing bad science fiction uh way back in the 90s and then i went to a used bookstore and I picked up, I'm sure it's on the shelves here. Did somebody buy The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler and you will find it uh, change your life because the, from the word go, from like the first sentence, you hear Marlowe talking to you. And so 
when you read uh, the Homes on the Range books, I hope that that is something that you notice immediately, that Big Red is talking to you. And he is a very particular guy. He's a lovable guy. I hope you think he's lovable. Uh, but he's a, he's an idiosyncratic dude, and he's going to tell you the story his way. Um, so yeah, like things with that are very voicey like that. Were or, the Flashman books inspirational? I love those so much. I know so many people who love them, and I tried to read one. Couldn't once. do it. I, it just didn't grab me, but I I I am going to try it again. Do you guys know the Flashman books by George MacDonald Frazier? Yeah, everybody knows them. Okay, uh, he doesn't. I know so many people who love them. I feel. Well, it's a great. I mean, the, the conceit is so great. You know, it's this uh, coward, uh, womanizer, you know, rake character, who, you know, Fraser puts him in like all these decisive points in like European and even American history of the time, and he's like the the only guy that survives and everybody else is killed. And uh, oh, there's just so much fun. So yeah, much they fun. seem like they should be right up my alley. So yeah, bad on me that I, I have not read yeah. the whole series yet. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you, and then we'll open it up. For, well, actually, I'd like, I understand you have some, a, a bit you'd like to read for us maybe? or Well, you know, what? how are we doing on time? Like I don't want to uh, eat up all of our time for questions. 20 minutes, right? Yeah. We got yeah. about 20 yes. minutes or so. But I wanted to ask you, where did Amlingmeyer come from? Oh, well, the there's name? a, there's uh there's an embarrassing story behind that. Okay. Um, do, do, do people remember Charlie Brown had the little red-haired girl? Do you guys remember that there was the little girl he had a crush on that he could never bring himself to talk to? Uh, this is really mortifying. When I was in elementary school, there was a little red-haired girl that I had a crush on. She lived in my neighborhood. Her name was Jody Amlingmeyer. And so I always remembered that name. But I didn't, I did not, sorry, Jody, I did not pick that as a tribute to Jody Amlingmeyer. I picked that name because um, when I was first trying to, writing the first story, um, I was writing about a cattle drive and I knew that there were gonna be these cowboys on the cattle drive who find the Sherlock Holmes story and are inspired by it. But it was really important to me that they don't have names like Rock Grand, you know, <laughs> uh, that uh, they, they have names because you know, who was out in the West? immigrants it was right. people coming from all over europe mostly and and from elsewhere as well so um rock grand there might have been a rock grand but you're going to find a lot more people named things things like amley meyer now i will say uh i was asked many times by my by my publisher uh, at the time st martin's minotaur uh when we were first getting the ball rolling like so this amley meyer thing you you really married to that <laughs> Uh, like, how about Colt Steel? What do you think? And I was like, well, the stories are already out there. I can't change it now. So they, they let me keep it. But I don't know if, if it had been Colt Steel detective, may, maybe the series would have taken off in a different way. Did Was there a suggestion the Big Red, Old Red? Or was that always part? They were they were okay with Big Red and Old Red. Yeah. It was having a last name that no one could pronounce. Sure. That like and you know point taken. Like I, I get it, guys. I get it. Why why you'd prefer them to have a name that people can actually read? But um, no, I I like you know. Imagine a guy named Hawkinsmith having a fondness for <laughs> big, long, clunky names. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> So I was expecting you to say that, yeah, years later, that red-haired girl and I connected on <laughs> and today, Facebook. 
and today my finger yes, is exactly. not a ring that she uh, knows anything about. Yeah, no, that, right. that's not the end of the story. Um, well, I, I think we could sort of throw it open to the crowd where we could say, like, I could do a quick reading and then do questions. Or if people hate when authors read, which I know some people do, I'm, I'm happy to spare you so we can let democracy decide. And I will not be offended. Well, first, anybody have questions? Oh, yeah, yeah I guess that'll settle it, because if no one has questions, I guess I'm reading. And now people are quickly trying to think of questions. Mm. Questions. Oh, are you a fancer? Or do you thought you're going to get out? I, obviously, I mean, no. Uh, bad joke. Sorry, that was a dad joke there. Uh, the, the question was, uh, am I a panther or a plotter? And, you know, folks who know writers know that um, we, we break down into two camps. Uh, those who pants it, who just sit down and they start typing and amazing books come out and people who cannot do that and have to sit down and figure out what they're going to write first. I am the latter. Uh, I cannot write word one unless I know exactly where I'm going. And in fact, um, the first part of writing any of these books um, is first, uh, people might remember from Winnie the Pooh, think, 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 think. Uh, that's me. Think, 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 think. I, I have to think, 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 think for about a month or two, you know, doing research at the same time, but just like writing down ideas, writing down, developing the idea, developing the idea, but then what, but then what, but then what, and then I'm outlining. And I do outlines that would make some people want to throw themselves off a bridge because I, it's beat by beat by beat in every chapter. I know exactly everything that happens in every chapter before I start writing. Now I will say, uh, I think that the best writing advice to give to any writer is you do you. So some people can do the plotting thing. And in fact, it's the only way they can work, especially for mysteries, um, where to me, the kind of mysteries I'm constructing are so sort of intricate that I can't get to page 250 and then decide that Jack's the killer because why and how? Like that, has, that all has to be built in from the beginning and layered in through the whole thing. And that's where you get your good red herrings. And that's where, you know, so I have to know that. Well, and, and I will say also that there's a huge advantage to doing it my way. So everybody do it my way is what I'm really saying. I'm not saying that. Um, that I, I do these super, super detailed outlines and I write very slowly. I mean, I am a crazy slow writer uh, because I'm also polishing as I write and I'm always reading things out loud and like, how does that sound? And going back and can just change it. So when I get to the end of a book, the amazing thing is I am done with the book. I do not rewrite. I, I have had to rewrite, you know, a little bit here and there over the years to fix this problem or fix that problem. Um, but no, when I get to the end of a, of a book, then I go through and I polish. Then I just go through, I read it again. But it is, and, and there'll be little things like notes to myself of like, oh, this needs to be developed more, or oh, that didn't quite come across, or oh, you need to kind of change that characterization. But in terms of like a huge bit of plot mechanics, that guy didn't kill the, the, the priest, the Pope did. And like, oh, now I have to figure out how the Pope, what, ah? And then out goes that draft, which is a very familiar story for some writers, never happened to me. So the, the secret to my success is to torture yourself for months. And, but then when you get to the end, you've gotten to the end.
when you do that, do you start with the crime, uh, the discovery of the crime, or do you start with the end of, you know, what, what, what the solution is? Like, uh, I know this guy did this for this reason. Or do you start out with, oh, there's the solution. Yes. There's there's a body. There it is. Yes, I start. I start with with that usually. Sections of the thing. Yeah, I start with like sort of like what's the the sort of impetus crime. Uh, so like if I want it to be that, well, you know, you know, with Double uh, A Western Detective Agency, it was a little different. Where I just like I just knew I wanted to be like a westerny, more westerny setting than I've done before, and and sort of double down on that. It's a range war, so like it's okay. It's going to be about a range war. I got to figure out someone. Someone's got to die. Um, but with with uh, uh, Hunters of the Dead, I knew like, so, you know, spoiler alert, um, you know, paleontologists, uh, they're going to be digging, they're going to find a body. I mean, like, that's got to be it, right? I mean, how could it not be the paleontologists are digging for dead dinosaurs and someone finds a dead dude? That's got to be it. So then it all sort of builds out from that. Do you like a prologue? Wow, now it's funny. You should mention that. Uh, uh, regular readers of the series will know that every one of the novels always starts with what I call the prelude. Uh, that is my cheat. That Those are all in there because when I was writing the first book, uh, my then agent, God bless her, said, shouldn't you get to the body faster? And I'm like, ah, I'm trying, I'm trying. You know, like, And there, there I was doing you know, multiple drafts because that was my first novel and, and, uh, you know, still sort of learning things and, and getting a lot of notes from my then agent. Um, so like, and I'm a guy who, you know, in, in, as a, as a, uh, as a consumer of stories, I like setup. I am not a, like, you have to have an explosion on page one. I like, let me meet these people. Who are these people? What's where, what does their world like? Oh, you know, you don't have to get right to the plane crash or the nuclear bomb or whatever. There's a body in the ductwork, by the way. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. That, that's a good twist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, I, I I don't mind. I won't call it a leisurely pace, but I, I I like a little setup. Get to know everybody before, you know, and some people have this idea, like, you got to have a body on page one. Like, ah, I don't like that because then you have like, and then Joe thought back to two days before and, you know, like, do that thing, which I make fun of. And then I did it. Because the solution I figured out was, you know, because my agent uh, kept pushing, like, get to the body faster. And it's like, I've cut all of the setup I can cut. I can't get to the body any faster and have it make sense. Well, how about if I cheat? And what I did was have the sort of a pivotal moment where they discover a body in, a, in very bad shape right on page one, like right away. That's the first paragraph is like... This, this body is in really bad shape. Um, and so bang. And then you go, and that's like whatever, 1,500 words, something like that. And then you go to chapter one, and you do the thing of, how did we get here? Well, let me tell you. And because it's Big Red telling the story, I feel like he can do that. So because that ended up, nobody caught me. Nobody called me out for that cheat. Uh, now it's just the way the series works and I do it every time. And it's, uh, you know, sort of like the way I do the headings and subheadings for every chapter. Uh, it's just like one of these little quirks of the series. Every time you read one of these novels, that's how it's going to go. Well, you know, it's kind of fun. And it's, it's, uh, did you end up kind of reading the, the Penny Dreadfuls and, and studying those kind of dime Westerns of the era just to kind of get a flavor of how the, the, the tales were told? I did. I did read some of those. I will say, 
uh, when you read some of those, you will see why most people do not read them anymore because they're tough sledding. Um, you know, when you pick up uh, Arthur Conan Doyle or um, H. Ryder Haggard, uh, like there's certain writers that like, they are still great. There's just like, they're, they're ripping yarns and they, they, you still just totally get into the story and it's, and it's wonderful. They are the exception. When you read most of the turgid, turgid prose from that period, especially the sort of dime novel, penny dreadful stuff, it's, it's dreadful. It's not worth a penny. Uh, so yes, I've, I've, I've looked at some of that stuff, which is why, um, you know, as the series gone, has gone on, it, they've, um, most of the short stories are uh, epistolary. They're big red writing to people, uh, you know, letters telling them about things that have happened. But he's also trying to, as it goes on, sell them as short stories. And then, you know, as the series goes on, he begins selling them as short stories. He gets a publisher. Um, and uh, the publisher is, is, a, is a publisher of Penny Dreadful dime novels. And so sort of a, an, a running joke now in the series is finding out the terrible, terrible titles that Big Red's publisher has given earlier stories and novels in the series. Um, so like uh, the AA Western Detective Agency, which I think is a perfectly good title. Um, I think it's like, oh God, what is it? Um, Cowboy Brothers versus the Arizona Death Baron or something like that, like uh, exclamation mark. So, um, so yes, I, I so which is what they would do. Um, so yes, I'm I'm playing around with that stuff. When I was again writing that that uh, those first drafts of the first novel, one of the notes I was getting from my then agent uh, was about the prose, in that I was trying more to you could say ape or sort of evoke this the sort of um labyrinthine sentence structures that were very popular with those kinds of writers like long sentences with lots of clauses like you read a paragraph and then realize that was a sentence oh my god um and i wasn't doing that but i was i was sort of writing more of uh you know an 1890s uh writer in that style and she was like knock it off uh, so I pulled back and I have, and that was a very, that was very good advice. Thank you then agent. Um, and as the series has gone on, I've done that more and more. I've, 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 I still am resisting certain modern touches that you will not find in Holmes on the Range novels, but other things I've, I've relented on and you'll find that the way that it's written is, is a little more in keeping with the other things on the shelves. I do like that, that convention, you know, when you see in an old, especially in Westerns, you know, like the chapter headings, it'll be like the hunting party and then the Indians arrived. And, you know, like there's a description of what, what I love about those is they tell you exactly what's going to happen right. before you read the chapter. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be like the hunting party. It's like Joe is shot by a Shoshone. He falls into a well. Surprise. We get him out with horses. It's like, why do Buffalo stampede. Why am I reading the chapter if you're telling me everything that happens? So, yes, what I do is um, I tell you what's going to happen, but I do it almost in like a riddle. I, I give you this little subheading that's uh, meant to be clever and hints at what you're going to see, but doesn't just like Joe fell down a well and, and then we got him out with ponies. The end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you give us a hint of, uh, of where you're going next? What's the next book going to be like? Um yeah, at first I was like, where am I going next? Out to dinner, probably. Right. Uh, um, but also where I'm going is there, well, there's a, there's a flurry of Homes on the Range activity. Uh, so much so that everyone is going to be immensely confused about all the books that are coming up. Um, so I will help you now by describing them all. 
Uh, so Hunters of the Dead, the novel, just came out. Uh, in the next week or so, there will be a re-release of a book called Dear Mr. Holmes, which is an older collection of all the early Holmes on the Range short stories. Mm. In Later in November, there will then be a book called Partners in Crime, Five Holmes on the Range Mysteries, which is five of the later Holmes on the Range stories, four of them in Ellery Queen, one of them actually brand spanking new mm. for the collection. Then... At the end of December comes a uh, collection of novellas uh, called Black List, White Death, uh, two Holmes and Arranged novellas. So that's, and those are original. Those have never been published anywhere. So that's, wow. that's on the way. And then uh, this wonderful publisher, Rough Edges Press, um, they will be publishing two spinoff novels next year. Uh, one of them is done. One of them I'm, I'm going to be writing uh, very soon. Uh, they are about uh, a couple of the characters we meet in Double A Western Detective Agency, a Hoop and Eskimism. And then in Hunters of the Dead, we meet their third sort of, uh, I would call them a buddy, but they, they, they bicker a lot, Deal. Um, the three of them will go off and have two of their own uh, adventures. And they are much more, they're not mysteries. They're, they're much more sort of action Western things, just because I really needed to scratch that itch. Um, so I'll do those two books. Uh, People who've gotten to the end of Hunters of the Dead know that I, I make sort of a promise. There's another one coming, and I can't make you wait too long because I've promised it. I've set it up. So, yes, there will be, um, after I get these two spinoff westerns out of the way, there will be another Holmes in the Range novel, at least one more. Prequel, right? Um, no. Possibly. No, no. This, this, will be, uh, this will be carrying on actually directly out of Hunters of the Dead. Uh, a pre I have thought about a prequel, but I don't think that's that's way down on the idealist. Yeah. Great. Anybody have any questions? Crickets. Um, nothing that's really set in stone yet. I do. I mean, speaking of prequels, I do. Um, I I I know that there's a mystery. I, I haven't hit it too hard yet, but around the whole thing of Diana and the fact that Colonel Crow is her adoptive father, and I've never explained it. And I know vaguely what the explanation is, and it involves Hoop, Eskimenzim, and Deal and their backstory in the 10th Cavalry. So I, I'm thinking about, okay, when am I going to circle back to that? When will that be its own thing? But will that be a Holmes on the Range novel? Will that be a spinoff novel? Will that... I don't... I'm not sure yet. So... I like that. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's, a, that's a great idea. So yeah, no, that that's definitely cooking. And I've got the whole idea list. And then, you know, I'll say a lot of it also depends on um, how many people how really want sell. me to do. Right. <laughs> if if uh, these have been wonderful to do, I've really had a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for fun. Um, but yeah, if if it turns out people don't want me to write anymore, maybe I'll have to think about stopping but as long as people keep reading them i'll keep writing them well it sure is great to see the see them all back in print and to see the new ones and and very exciting about all this new activity it's awesome thank you thank you so yeah. much I'm, I'm excited to be back again to, to have been here uh all those years ago at the very beginning of my writing journey uh you know when my first book is coming out uh, this was one of the first book signings i did and this one was fantastic i really thought like i made it and to be back here with all you wonderful people talking it's about great. these books, uh, it's, it's really thrilling. So cool. 
Well, maybe we should break up and have you sign some books for us. That sounds perfect. Let's give them a nice Thank warm. Thank you, everybody. And yeah, thanks so much. And thanks, everybody, on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Appreciate it. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.